So our text this morning uh, is in Matthew 26. We read verses leading up to the text that I'll be preaching from this morning. So our text is Matthew 26, beginning at verse 47. Matthew 26, beginning at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. Then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Behold, one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send me more than twelve legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled, that it must be so? At that hour Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I sat in the temple teaching And you did not seize me, but all this has taken place. The scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled, that all the disciples left him and fled. When it comes to your relationship with Christ, there are really only two possibilities. You are either with him or against him. You either love Christ or hate him. You are either living for the world or for Christ. And there's really no middle ground when it comes to your spiritual state. You belong to the kingdom of Satan or to the kingdom of Christ. And using figures from Scripture itself, you are either a sheep or a goat, a wheat or a tare. And what we see happening in the text before us this morning is a spiritual confrontation between the kingdom of Satan and Christ. Now notice I did not say a confrontation between the kingdom of Satan and the kingdom of Christ. I said a confrontation between the kingdom of Satan and Christ, for, these, for those disciples who belonged to Christ's kingdom end up fleeing in fright. Jesus engaged the kingdom of Satan by himself. For even those who did belong to Christ and loved him, left him. They were cowards who were unwilling to be associated with Christ when the going got tough. And this highlights the truth that those who belong to the kingdom of Christ do not always act like they do. As believers, you and I still sin. And make no mistake about it, it displeases God when you give in to the remnants of your corrupt nature and act like you belong to Satan. Though, of course, just because you still sin as a believer doesn't mean you actually belong to Satan. If you in your heart of hearts love Christ and are trusting in him alone for the forgiveness of your sins, then you can be sure that you belong to him now and for all eternity, and nothing can break that bond. Not what you do or don't do, nothing for salvation is not a matter of works. It's a gift of grace earned totally and completely by Christ and given by means of faith, which itself is a gift. This truth is emphasized in the text before us because all of the people around Christ show themselves to be unfaithful and in that way unworthy of salvation. I'm talking about even Christ's closest disciples. Not one person there with Christ in the garden shows himself worthy to be in Christ's kingdom. Nevertheless, some did belong to Christ, but 
very clearly by grace, which of course is the only way possible. The grace we need is that undeserved love for sinners, according to which Jesus gave himself to the suffering and death of the cross. And the text before us is all about that gracious love for clearly Jesus allows himself to be arrested. Meanwhile, the kingdom of Satan comes against Jesus because they want to destroy him in hatred. And even though it appears that Jesus has finally been overcome by the forces of wickedness, the reality is that Jesus lets them take him and lets them eventually put him to death because it is his will to be our sin sacrifice. Jesus is determined to fulfill Scripture's promises of salvation that are for you no matter what that means for him personally. And what it did mean was suffering beyond description and suffering that he went through alone because he alone could save us. Notice the disciples played no part in his saving work. They, in fact, forsook him and they fled. And Jesus had to take on the forces of Satan by himself. And yet he did it willingly, knowing that we were firmly in Satan's grip and, and, and unable to do anything to save ourselves. And what a sad testimony it is to the sinfulness of man that this great crowd, this multitude, this mob would arrest the incarnate Son of God. Satan hates God. He hates his plan of salvation And what we see here is the outworking of Satan's determination to destroy God's son through the use of evil men. We notice here that Satan, he didn't coerce those involved, these these people that were a part of this crowd. They they were not forced against their will to do what they're doing. In fact, scripture is clear that they want to take Jesus and they had actually wanted to kill him for quite some time already. And uh, we know that they had not been able to do so because God prevented it up until now for things will happen on God's time schedule At the same time you can be sure that the religious leaders felt that their inability to arrest and kill Jesus until now had nothing to do with God but was simply a matter of bad luck as far as they were concerned they just had been unable to find the right situation And had you talked to them and and explained to them that they were fighting against God and what they were doing, they would have adamantly denied that. I'm sure that they would have insisted that in killing Jesus, they were actually doing what God wanted them to do. After all, they had long ago judged Jesus to be a blasphemer, a traitor, and ultimately a destroyer of the true religion. And having failed miserably in the past to stop Jesus, we see now how they have mustered their forces. They are done fooling around. They are finished playing games. They will arrest Jesus. They will stop him. And they've now come to him as a great crowd, even armed with weapons. Leading the assault in all of this is Judas Iscariot. Remember that he just hours before this had left the Passover meal that Jesus was sharing with his disciples. And though most of the disciples did not know where Judas was going and what he was doing, Scripture lets us know that Judas left to carry out his work of betraying the Lord. He must have immediately gone to the chief priests who had hired him, and he apparently told them that the opportune time had come and that they must act quickly, and that's certainly what they did. By the time this great crowd approaches Jesus in the garden, many steps have fallen into place. The religious leaders, first of all, had to figure out where Jesus was going to be and 
Judas was the one to lead them to the Garden of Gethsemane. And having determined that the time had come to make an arrest, a posse was organized. The temple police were notified and came on a moment's notice. Roman soldiers were a part of this great crowd. For them to be there, the religious leaders must have asked for permission from the Roman officials. And with permission granted, a Roman cohort, uh, the Gospel of John tells us, was issued to them, a cohort being around 480 men. Putting together what all of the Gospel accounts tell us, it sounds like the entire Sanhedrin may have been there, which was that judicial body that included Sadducees, chief priests, elders, Pharisees. And uh, for sure, Sadducees, Pharisees, chief priests, and elders were all involved in this plot against Jesus. Verse 47 of our text, uh, when it speaks of those who came from the chief priests and elders, leads us to believe that this crowd even included representatives of the chief priests and elders. And so the conclusion that must be drawn is that many members of the Jewish religious leadership were there that night, along with some representatives, plus Roman soldiers, plus temple police. Based on the estimates made by some scholars, the multitude that approached Jesus that fateful night may have been as many as 1,000 people, and many of them were armed. The text speaks of swords and clubs. It's thought by most that the Roman soldiers would have been the ones with swords, and the temple police carried clubs. But whatever the case, the fact that this great multitude could be organized together in a matter of a few hours shows the determination of the religious leaders, as well as the fact that there had been advanced planning that had taken place. The arrest, the eventual death of Jesus was very clearly premeditated to the condemnation of those involved. This great crowd, what we might call a mob, was led into the garden by Judas. The chief priests and elders had made clear to Judas they wanted to capture Jesus at a time when he was away from the crowds, a time when he could be arrested without incident. So the darkness of night and the seclusion of the Garden of Gethsemane made this the ideal moment. And yet because of the darkness and, and because many in this mob wouldn't know Jesus by sight, especially we can think of the, the Roman soldiers, they probably don't know Jesus. Well, Judas, then in consultation with the religious leaders, had determined that he would give them a sign. He said, the one I will kiss is the man, seize him. And of course, in the minds of the multitude, Judas was the perfect betrayer. He was a disciple and he was a friend of Jesus. Jesus wouldn't be expecting any malevolence from Judas was what their, their thinking would have been. This would allow them to catch Jesus off guard. In fact, the sign of a kiss was specifically chosen in order to eliminate any question of danger from Jesus' mind. We are told in verse 49, and he, that is, Judas came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And the word in the Greek used here for, for this kiss is a, is a word that speaks of great affection. And it's used here in a way to indicate fervent, continuous expression of action. So one translator puts it this way, and he stepped up to Jesus at once and said, Hello, Rabbi, and kissed him fervently. Same word is used with the woman who repeatedly kissed Jesus' feet, wiping them with her hair and anointing them with perfume. It's also used to describe the response of the father to the returning prodigal son. 
In other words, Jesus pretended to be, Judas pretended to be Jesus' close, intimate friend. And in the most despicable fashion, he lavished this sign of affection upon Jesus, while in his heart he despised Jesus. There's arguably no greater example of hypocrisy. It's rather remarkable that Judas thought he could trick Jesus with this kiss as though Jesus didn't know what was really going on. Think of it, this is how far Judas was from grasping the reality of who Jesus is. With divine omniscience, Jesus responds to Judas' friend, do what you came to do. We also have the other gospel accounts of this very incident in which Jesus is recorded as asking Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? So Jesus was telling Judas he knew what he was doing. And what ought to come to us as a shocking indication of Judas's depravity is that nothing is recorded of any kind of response from Judas. What we do know is that Judas paid no attention to what Jesus said, for he continued on with his wicked act of betrayal. So that having, having given the sign we read, then they came up and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Why did Judas and these others do this? The question why is particularly relevant because Jesus was a totally innocent man. All Jesus did his entire life was to teach the truth and to heal the sick, cast out demons. He, in general, did good wherever he went. He never once broke God's law. He was a perfect man, which didn't mean that he was a gentle and mild pushover. He was angry at the sin he saw around him, especially the hypocrisy of the religious leaders. And he even spoke out against it. And there are occasions of him overturning the tables of the money changers, the people doing business there in the temple. But of course, his anger was always righteous anger. He was angered by those who dishonored his God. But other than those few instances in which he got in the face of the religious leaders, he was merciful and he was compassionate. And always in his interactions with others, he returned good for evil. And now an armed posse is there in the garden to arrest him. Jesus appropriately asks in verse 55, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? You would have thought from what was happening that Jesus was an armed serial killer. And so this scene screams out for an answer. Why? Why have all of these people gone to all of this trouble to arrest an unarmed innocent man? We begin to answer that question by pointing out that what accounts for this attack upon Jesus is really man's wickedness. When a totally innocent man is treated as Jesus was, it's only wickedness that can account for it. Case in point, Judas was an unfaithful friend. He was a a very self-centered man. And this is evident that from the fact that he betrayed Jesus for a mere 30 pieces of silver. Think of it, that's how little value Judas placed on Jesus. That's how, how little he valued their friendship. For Judas to have turned on Jesus in this way proves that Judas hated Jesus. And we aren't told exactly why, but likely it was because Judas hoped for Uh, for having riches and and prestige as a disciple of the Messiah had been shattered. When it became clear over time that Jesus was not going to ascend the throne in Jerusalem, Judas apparently had no use for him anymore, which means that for Judas, Jesus was a tool to his own ends and expendable then when when, uh, Jesus didn't deliver the goods like he expected. 
This explanation uh, fits perfectly with the fact that Judas stole from the disciples' treasury. That indicates to us that clearly he had his heart set on the riches of this world. And along with this, we also know that as, as an unbeliever willing to betray Jesus, Judas had no appreciation for Jesus as the Savior from sin. And uh, we can deduce from that that he must have been offended by Jesus' continual teaching uh, on the need for personal repentance and, and trust in him. Hatred of Jesus for calling people to faith in him was certainly a reality for the religious leaders. They hated Jesus because he confronted them with their sin and with their inability to fix the problem themselves. He demanded that they humble themselves before him and seek his righteousness. And proud sinful man, left to himself, will not do it. And furthermore, the religious leaders were full of envy. Scripture tells us this explicitly. Jesus, his growing popularity with the people, along with the dying popularity of the religious leaders, that was the primary reason for hating Jesus. Envy is a a root sin into which any of us can fall. For it's natural that we resent other people's prosperity and, and, and advantages. It's a terrible sin that leads to other sins, even fueling anger into murder. And it so consumed the religious leaders that they wanted nothing less than to see Jesus dead because of it. They never were planning to give him a fair trial. This is evident from the fact that the Roman soldiers were there to arrest Jesus, uh, to, have, to have gotten the soldiers there, they, they had to have, have uh, uh, got, they, have had, they had to have uh, had contact with a Roman official, and two things would have been true. First of all, they must have accused Jesus of a capital crime, specifically the crime of rebellion against Rome, which was a crime punishable by death. In other words, Rome would never have sent these troops, would never have sent them to arrest a man unless they had been convinced a genuine and very serious crime was involved. And second, the Jews wanted the Roman government involved from the start because they, as Jews, had to have Roman permission to exercise the death penalty. Of course, having the soldiers there would also be further assistance in making sure that Jesus wouldn't get away this time. But we see from all of the personnel and from all of the plans made for Jesus' arrest how man will do whatever he can to fight God. Man in his determination to do evil will not give up. So many times the religious leaders had been frustrated in their attempts to stop Christ, but their wickedness was such that they would not stop at any means. Lies, bribery, manipulation, brute force, all of it was on the table. And there throughout it all was Jesus, calm and collected, not resisting his enemies, We know that the real reason why this is happening to Jesus is because Jesus is voluntarily giving his life for sinners. Jesus let himself be arrested. We learn from John's account that Jesus went right up to his captors and he asked them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And the text also tells us that when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So that Jesus right then and there showed his power over them. They weren't overcoming him. This overgrown armed posse is a joke. For not only was such human force unnecessary, it would have absolutely been futile had Jesus wanted to get away. It was probably as those men fell back that 
Peter saw an opportunity to defend his Lord and came down with his sword. He was likely hoping to, to split the head of the high priest's servant, but that servant probably ducked out of the way, ducked his head, and the sword only swiped off his ear. But consistent with his giving his life away in his saving work, Jesus would have nothing to do with this kind of a defense. He went on to warn Peter against taking up the sword in rash ways for personal causes. Jesus wanted his disciples to understand that his kingdom doesn't use physical force to advance itself. Weapons of our warfare are spiritual, not carnal. The spiritual nature of his kingdom is confirmed when Jesus points out that if he wanted to, he could pray to his father and angels would be sent immediately to his rescue. So Jesus wasn't worried. He wasn't anxious. He wasn't up against a wall. All of his enemies could have been turned to dust in a split second. Jesus let them arrest him because scripture had to be fulfilled. Jesus was intent on fulfilling the promises of salvation that depended upon his sacrificial death for sinners. Verse 56 explains, but all this has taken place that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. What was happening to Jesus was according to God's plan, a plan even made in eternity, a plan predicted many times throughout Old Testament history by the prophets and now being fulfilled. Yes, this plan was being carried out by wicked men full of envy and hate, but nevertheless, all ordained by God for the ultimate purpose of saving sinners. Because this event was about Jesus saving work for sinners, Jesus had to be arrested alone. The next thing we are told after Jesus is arrested that is that the disciples defected. The end of verse 56 says, Then all the disciples left him and fled. They just hightailed it out of there. And we can't even imagine how much grief this brought to Jesus' heart. Perhaps you've abandoned a friend in a time of need, or maybe you've been the one who was abandoned. It hurts. Jesus' friends were gone. There was no one to share in his suffering, and Jesus had predicted it. He he had said, you will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. But just because Jesus knew this was going to happen didn't make it any less real or painful when it occurred. It was clear the disciples were not willing to die with Jesus. They had just been told not to defend him with a sword, but they could have defended him with their lips. They could have stood up for him and with him. But it's always easier to run, isn't it? Isn't it true in your own life that you have in various ways, fled, possible embarrassment, ridicule, or mockery due to association with Christ. Like the disciples, it's predictable that there are times that you think about self more than Christ. You love Christ, but there does come a point when you count the cost of discipleship to be too high. When is the cost too high for you? Embarrassment? Mockery? If you're not willing to die for Christ... Your commitment is not what it should be. Jesus says in another place, if anyone desires to come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Would you follow Christ to Calvary, willing to die as one of his followers? That's what it means to take up Jesus' cross. It means willing to die with him and for him. I wonder if we're any different than Jesus' own disciples. (coughs) Judas, of course, was an unbelieving traitor, but all the rest 
They were believers and yet fell far short of the glory of God. And from a certain point of view, it was necessary that they abandon him, that is, abandon Jesus in order that he might travel this this path of the cross alone. No one must try to help him. He must not be allowed any comfort. This was necessary because not only was he, not only because he alone as the son of God was ordained to suffer the eternal wrath of God unrelentingly and with all of its full force, but also because it was to be clear that no one was going to be able to add anything to Jesus' saving merits. Jesus did it all. And in this passage, it is clear that our only hope of salvation is Christ's atoning work on our behalf. Notice, even the 11 disciples are unfaithful. Of all the people around Christ in the garden, there's really not one good example for us to follow. And could it be any clearer how sinful we are? At the same time, the 11 disciples were saved. They belonged to Christ. Peter's determination to, say, to uh, save Jesus by use of his sword, though misdirected, was an act of love. He and the other 10 disciples did love Jesus. Their faith was sinfully weak, but that did not put them outside of the kingdom. <coughs> and their forsaking of Jesus only proves, as does your weak faith, that we all need Christ. In the end, this passage is one of many in which the Holy Spirit is, is trying to strip away all confidence in ourselves and directing our trust toward Christ, the one who came to save sinners. What's your response to this event? Do you find your heart filled with love for Christ? Does your heart melt as you see him give himself to his captors? Because you know he is putting in motion the events that are going to bring about his death for your sins? Are you ashamed of Jesus? Hopefully not, but maybe like Judas, you don't really consider him to be of real importance in your life. Maybe like the religious leaders, you outright hate him because his message seems to always be telling you what a terrible sinner you are. And you can't stand hearing that. It hurts your self-esteem and you want to feel good about yourself. You want to be told how good you are. Well, Jesus didn't die for righteous people. He came for those who will admit that they are sinners and confess their need of his righteousness. And he went to the cross alone because he was the one anointed by God for the task of accomplishing salvation on behalf of his people. And he didn't need your help. He didn't need anyone's help in any way. And actually, there is nothing that you as a sinner could ever offer. Your sinfulness and Christ's perfect fulfillment of all righteousness for us means that to be saved, you can and you must rest upon Christ alone for your salvation. Amen. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for the love of our Savior as he was willing to place himself in the situation of, of being arrested, of being left alone to suffer. Father, we are ashamed to think that we have the very same human nature as that of the disciples, so we struggle with loyalty and faithfulness. We struggle with embarrassment and mockery and, and uh, counting the cost of, of what it is to follow after you and not always being willing to pay the price. Father, we ask that you would forgive us. 
For Father, you are worthy of our complete devotion and faithfulness as we contemplate the love of Christ, his willingness to undergo the the suffering and death of the cross, to be arrested by this this evil mob in anticipation of that. Father, we we stand in awe uh, of your love. And uh, Father, we do ask that you would forgive our sins on the basis of of Christ's saving work, that we, Father, would not resist the, the good news that begins with the bad news of our sinfulness and need, our spiritual need. Um, Father, may we recognize that in seeing our need and, and going to Christ, there's salvation, there's eternal life, there's forgiveness, there's joy, and there's peace. So, Father, we thank you for Christ, and we uh, thank you for this passage that speaks clearly of our sinfulness, but of your grace, which is sufficient to cover all of our sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.